We are looking in John's Gospel at John chapter 17 this morning. We're picking up where we left off last Sunday, and we have been in John's Gospel since I got here in June, um, the last ten and a half months. And we are in chapter 17. We're at the end of what theologians have called the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse of the Lord Jesus. And we're in that section of uh, the upper room where the Lord is now turned from teaching his disciples the most precious truths he could teach them on his way to the cross to now turning to his father. And and, he, and what he's going to do, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but Jesus is essentially going to take everything he has taught and he's going to pray it back to his father. Always a good lesson for us that um, when we have taught God's word or received it, that we ought to entrust what has been taught or received to him in prayer. The Lord Jesus does that now. He is not thinking of himself as he goes to the cross uh, alone. He is thinking of the glory that the Father gave him before the world was, that he's going to give to him again. Um, but he is thinking of his disciples. And I noted last Lord's Day that this prayer in John 17, the longest that Jesus ever prays, divides very nicely into three sections. Jesus prays first for himself and for the glory of he and his father. Then he prays for the 11, which we're going to look at today. And then he prays for those who would believe in him. That's you, if you're a believer. Um, He goes out from himself to those the father has given him and to those who will believe. And so we're looking at the second of a three-part series, if we could call it that, on John 17. We're looking this morning at verses 6 down to verse 19, verse 6 to 19. Now, as Jesus is praying to his father, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's clearly a reference to Judas. That the scriptures might be fulfilled, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified In truth, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, the 19th century pastor and theologian Robert Murray McShane, who you have often heard me quote here, has a very famous saying that you maybe have heard before. McShane said at one time, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet, McShane says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me now. Now, he is reflecting on the ascendant Christ, the glorified Christ, who ever lives to make intercession. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. And yet, even before Christ intercedes and represents us before God in heaven right now, praying for us, as it were, pleading the merits of what he accomplished for us, he prayed in the days of his flesh as he was about to go to the cross. What a comfort. Before he goes to sacrifice himself for your sins and my sins, for your redemption and mine, Jesus stops and he prays this magnificent prayer to his Father for the disciples. Now, I noted already that this section of what we call the priestly prayer of Jesus is really focused on the eleven. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to have application to us. It will. And yet, in a very focused way, and if we think about what Jesus is going to do in the eleven and through the eleven, by the way, Jesus is the twelfth when Judas is gone. Very interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There have to be 12. He, at this point, is the 12th. He will leave, and then there will be another. Um, and yet, Jesus is entrusting the kingdom to these 11 men that he has chosen. And these are the ones that um, Luke says in the book of Acts that, that these men turned the world upside down. There's an old story about someone asking the Lord, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if these men fail? And he said, I have no other plans. Now, Jesus didn't say that, but he is saying that. He is saying that here. He is saying, these men are my plan to take the gospel to the nations. And so he is praying for them for the success of the ministry that they are going to have. And isn't that remarkable? Because what we'll see... Here And we'll look at this passage in a second, but what we see in the book of Acts, don't miss this, what we see in the rest of the New Testament is the Father's answer to this prayer. Isn't that remarkable? The rest of the New Testament is God the Father saying, I have heard you, I have answered my prayer, the gospel has gone to the nations. I have kept those that you asked me to keep, I have separated them from the world, I have sanctified them. In your name. Now, that's what I want us to see this morning. Just three things. I'll give you three S's this morning. Uh, the first is Christ is praying for those the Father has given him. He is praying for their safekeeping. Then he is praying for their separation. And then he is praying for their sanctification, their safekeeping, their separation, and their sanctification. Well, notice verse 11. And I'll point out where we see the safekeeping. Jesus says there, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Notice verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them. I have guarded them. 
Not one of them is lost. Now, Jesus cares more about you continuing in the faith than you do. That's a comforting thought. Jesus cared more about the safeguarding of the eleven than they did. If they had been left to themselves, they would have gone right back to the world. They would have blended right back in with everybody else for keeping themselves safe. And yet Jesus knows the task he's called them to. He knows that there's going to be opposition. He told them in chapter 15, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me before it hated you. What we said in that sermon, I don't know if you remember, this is a wake-up call. The world will never love you. If you belong to Christ, you will never be smart enough, good-looking enough, funny enough, popular enough. The world is going to hate you. And, and we see the opposition of the world, don't we? Throughout the New Testament, as the apostles go out, they meet that opposition. They stand before kings and rulers. They're beaten. Paul is mocked and scourged and shipwrecked. He is mob lynched in almost every city it feels like that he goes to to preach the gospel. He is opposed everywhere. And yet, Jesus says, though you are going to have that opposition, I am going to first pray that the Father safeguards you and keeps you so that you can persevere to the end. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the thoughts that I often have, often, is, Lord, I want to cross the finish line. I want to persevere. I was reading again this morning somebody who was a famous Christian. They always tend to be famous first. Famous Christian musician, totally apostatized. Totally walked away from the faith. And, and that causes my heart to tremble. That ought to, that ought to be a wake-up call. If that could happen to him, I better not ever say it could never happen to me. Now, it's not going to happen if we belong to Christ. Right? Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come. The one that comes to me, I will never cast out. I will keep. No one can snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. And yet there is a sobering reality that the opposition of the world puts such a pressure on a believer that there is always the ever-present temptation to go back. This is why the book of Hebrews was written. We don't cast away our confidence. We hold fast. We persevere. But we only do that because Christ and the Father are preserving us. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, I was meditating on this this morning, and Brody caught me out in the hall and was talking about how the disciples all forsook Jesus just right after this. They all forsake him. They all leave when he's arrested. And you know well, Peter is going to deny him when when. He has a little slave girl asking if he belongs to Jesus. That's, that's how fickle we are. That's how frail we are. A little girl who has no social status could cause Simon Peter, who is so bold in himself, to deny Jesus. Um, and yet, Jesus is not blind to their failings. Jesus is not blind to your failings. Jesus is not blind to my weakness. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Ian Hamilton said, yes, their obedience was lacking, but their obedience would be real when you see them. Remember, Simon Peter will deny the gospel in Galatia after Pentecost, after he sees the success of the gospel going out. When the Judaizers come in, he separates and he denies the gospel functionally. And Paul is going to have to confront him to his face. Yet Simon Peter is obedient. His obedience is very imperfect. His faith is imperfect. 
but his obedience is real. His faithfulness is shallow, but his faithfulness is true. How, how was it that Simon Peter made it to the end because Christ prayed for him? Isn't that beautiful? How is it that you will make it to the end because Christ, if you belong to him, prays for you? Now, notice throughout this, there's that language of those you have given me. I don't know, that ought to jump out at you, I think, 16 times in this prayer. The word gave or given, four times gave, 12 times given are used. It's the, it's the preeminent focus of Jesus in his relationship with his father. Those you gave me, you gave them to me. I'm committing them to you, all those who you gave me. I've given them your word. Uh, one theologian said there is, a, there is a, a, a love gifting going on. I think in John's gospel, there's a love gifting, isn't there? You have in John 3.16, the father, God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father's love gift to the world was Christ. And then the father's love gift to the son was the elect. He says, those whom I have given you in eternity, those that I chose in you and gave to you, those for whom you are going to die. This is my love gift to you. And then and then Christ says his love gift to the disciples is I've given you the father's word to keep you as a means to keep you and preserve you and sanctify you. Um, you know. I can't prove this, but I do suspect that in some way this prayer is especially for Simon Peter, as I've noted. He's kind of the chief among equals of the apostolic band at this point. And, and you know, the Lord wanted the disciples to hear this prayer. That's why we have it in Scripture. They heard him praying this. They took note of what he was saying. And I think that one of the things that Jesus is saying to the disciples in this prayer as he prays to his father one thing that's going to keep them is to hear, these are the ones the Father has given to me. These are the ones, Father, you gave to me. They belong to me. As a bride is given by her father in marriage to a bridegroom. Right? John's going to call Jesus the bridegroom in this very book. This is the bride. Isn't that beautiful? What, what, what can motivate you to continue in the faith more than that? That if you're looking to Christ by faith, if you're trusting in him, it's because God the Father in eternity gifted you to the Son to be part of his bride. That's amazing. And the Son is so taken up with that, that what fills Jesus' heart when he prays that, that these are the ones the Father has given me. That we are full of sin. That ought to be remarkable. How could anyone... I I don't even know how my wife loves me, let alone Christ. How could... How could Christ love us so much? And yet he is going to pour his life out. He is going to the cross to make sure that we are safeguarded. The Father is going to answer that prayer by Jesus hanging on the cross, shedding his blood for the sins of his people. What led Christ to lay down his life for us? Paul says, the Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me. I may have told you this at my wedding. At the reception, everybody got up and they talked about how awesome Anna was, not how awesome I was, because I'm not. And then my best friend got up and I was like, oh no, what's he going to say? And uh, 
And Stephen stood up and he said, the greatest thing I can tell you about Nick is that Jesus loves Nick. And he sat down. I'll never forget that. It's the greatest thing about you is that Christ loves you if you belong to him because the Father gave you to him and he came to die for you. Um, Notice verse 8, part of that keeping. Notice verse 8. Jesus says, I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's kind of the epicenter of the safekeeping. What made these 11 different than the world that Jesus was not praying for? Notice, again, I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them. They have received your word. Notice that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth. That I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know, one of the greatest accomplishments that Christ ever accomplished toward his death on the cross was that he convinced them that he is God in the flesh. One of Christ's greatest accomplishments on his way to the cross was that he convinced these 11 that he was God in the flesh. Because if you looked at them... There was nothing, Isaiah says, there was no former beauty that we should desire him. There was no loveliness about him. He wasn't dressed well. He didn't have a Brooks Brothers account. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't head and shoulders ever everybody else like Saul was. He wasn't coming in pomp and appearance. Um, he looked just like everybody else. And yet he was God over all. There was nothing, there was, no, there was no light bursting out of his eyes as he walked around or a halo like the medieval paintings had. He looked just like everybody else. And so for them to believe in him as the eternal son sent from the father is beyond remarkable. Because by external sight, there's no reason they should have believed in him. But you see, all that Jesus taught them, all that Jesus showed them, all that they heard from him. I I even imagine the tone of his voice, the look in his eyes. That's why I'm, I'm not big on images of Jesus. You can't capture a sinless look or a a sinless intonation. We don't know what the gracious voice would have sounded like, but even that wouldn't have been enough to convince them Jesus by the grace of his father working in them through the words that he gave them brought them to believe in him and to know in truth. And that's why he was praying that they would be kept. Um, secondly, I want us to consider their separation. Notice, notice down in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, we have talked about this a little bit in the past. There's, there's several dangers that you can fall into as a Christian. You can, you can so accommodate to culture that you become exactly like the world and you lose every distinction of being a Christian. Or you can so isolate from the world in a fundamentalist sense that you are ineffective in being a witness to Christ in the world. And so we, we are not looking for isolation. We are not looking for accommodation. Um, here Jesus wants separation. There has to be a distinction. You know, it, I've said this in the past, very unpopular today, to talk about us and them. 
Listen, Genesis 3.15, Christ puts a big wedge between those he's redeeming and those he's not. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. You either belong to Christ or you don't. Jesus says there's no neutrality. The world is going to hate us because he took us out of the world. Now, by the world here, he doesn't mean the created order that he created. He means that imposition of Satan's kingdom, right? The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. He means all those things that are antithetical to his word and to the truth about him that that strips him out of it. Everything that is empty and base, all the false philosophies and teachings and and all of the counterfeits, everything that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. And, and Jesus says that by nature, we all belong to that by nature, but by grace, he takes us out of the world. And so the world hates us because he separated us. He wants them safeguarded, but he also wants us separated. Um, that's not always an easy task because we find ourselves loving the things in the world far too much, far too often. Um, and, and we find it a lot easier not to live as separated men and women yet in the world among a world full of darkness. Um, and yet Jesus is praying for their separation. He's praying. He's praying that they'll be separate by God's word. Have you noticed the preeminence of the word of God throughout this? Notice back in verse eight again, for I've given them the words that you gave me. Notice back in verse six. They have kept your word. And then notice where we're at here. I have given them your word. What what separates us from the world? Scripture. God's word is what makes us separate. God's word is, is what puts a radical, uncrossable breach between believers and unbelievers. Because we receive God's word. That's, that's the separation. The separation is not isolating ourselves from the world. The separation is us receiving God's word, keeping it, cherishing it, loving it, living by it, interpreting the world around us through it. God's word is everything. It's everything. If, if, if I am not living a separated enough life, it's because I am not abiding in the words that the Father gave the Son and the Son gave to us. Um, the more we're in the Word, the more we'll realize that separation from the world. Because what happens, and I've, I've known this in my experience, you probably have too, the more God's Word abides in us, when when things around us are presented contrary to God's word, we can't help but speak the things we have seen and heard about Christ, about God's truth, even about the law of God. Um, you know, this week I got called a Pharisee for the first time ever on social media. I don't know what that means about me for saying it was crazy that we can't define what a woman is. According to biblical anthropology, a professing Christian called me a Pharisee for attacking and it wasn't even attacking for talking about the ludicrousy of someone in the highest court of this dark country saying you can't define a woman because of sexual sin preferences. That's crazy. Um, the world is going to hate us, and yet we are called not to be pugnacious. We are called to be separate. Um, and God's word is what distinguishes 
and separates believers from the world. Notice Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil one. What what is the great burden of the heart of Jesus that you not be in the hands of the evil one, that you not be walking according to the ways of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now uh, works in the sons of disobedience. The separation is a separation from the grip of the evil one. I want that in my life, don't you? I mean, I, I think about that all the time. That I don't want to be walking according to the spirit who now rules in the sons of disobedience. That's the separation that Jesus is praying for. And that's what Jesus is committed to. You know, here's what makes the difference. It's not that we can talk about ethics better than the world. I mentioned what I just said the other day about defining what a woman is. Because unbelievers can do that too, by the way. can talk about ethics. You can baptize ethics in a secular way in conservative politics. That's not Christianity. What makes the difference, what keeps us from the world is Jesus hanging on the cross to cleanse our hearts. Jesus is praying, again, that you keep them in the world, but you keep them from the evil one. How is that going to work? He is going to the cross to to crush the head of Satan. He is going to disarm principalities and powers. He is going to make a public spectacle triumphing over them in his death. He is going to break the power of sin. He's going to deliver his people. And then when we fall or we fail, we go back to him and he cleanses us. He forgives us. He frees us. And then you know what his death on the cross does? When I look at the cross and then I look at Instagram and see all the nonsense of the world placarded before us, it all looks so base and empty because the cross draws our hearts away from the fallen world. And we see a better sight of glory and we see a deliverer who delivers us from Satan and we long to see more of that. Um, I want us to thirdly, just finally, and very related, talk about Jesus praying for their sanctification. We've seen the safeguarding. We've seen the separation now. He prays for their sanctification. Notice verse 17. This is one of those very beloved statements of Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me in the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, the word sanctification carries a number of different meanings. It can mean just set apart in some functional sense. It can mean, and in that sense, consecrated. It can also mean to be made holy, to be transformed and to be made holy. The word sanctify carries that root idea of holiness. And what Jesus wants for his people is that we would be sanctified by the truth. If I am, if I am going to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness, then I need to be sanctified by the truth of God's word. Um, in my almost, I guess, 15 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had someone tell me, I haven't been in the Bible in months and I've never been so much like Christ. Ever. That's never happened. 
Um, I've never talked to someone whose life was in shambles and, and said to them, well, are you reading God's word? No. Well, that's why your life is in shambles. I've never in my own life, in periods of spiritual decline that we go through, um, ever thought, well, I'm, I'm in this place because I'm reading God's word so much. I'm meditating on it so much. Um, now, let me just say this. God's word is a means of grace. That's an old phrase that theologians used to, a media gratia, a means of grace. And, and yet it doesn't just work automatically. It's possible to read God's word and not be sanctified. The point of reading God's word is to see more and to know more of Christ and to come to him. To be drawn to him, to keep our eyes fixed on him. The writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. They say, the writer of Hebrews says, consider him through the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor. Looking unto Jesus, consider him, come to him, believe in him, trust in him, call on him, abide in him. And as we do, God's word in its totality does that sanctifying work as the Holy Spirit comes and makes it to work powerfully in us. Um, and yet it is the primary means of grace. We also say the Lord's Supper is a means of grace and fellowship and prayer. Even church discipline is a means of grace. Um, and yet the word is the central means and Jesus is. Highlighting that by praying, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, notice verse 19, very interesting verse, very difficult verse. Jesus there says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, what does that mean? Because we know that Jesus doesn't ever lack holiness. We know that he was always sinless. We know that he didn't need any purification for his own sin. And yet Jesus says, for their sake, I have sanctified myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, here's what I think Jesus is saying. He is saying every act of obedience, every sinless thought, word and action that he ever did. All the way to the point of death on the cross is part of his sanctification. And then when he hangs on the cross, all of your pollution and all of my pollution is put on him. And as the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and our sins are washed away in his blood as he satisfies the justice of God, as his soul suffers the pains of hell on the cross, as his blood is being spilled to cover your wickedness and mine, he is being sanctified. He's being purified because our sins really and truly were imputed to him as if they were his own. The Apostle Paul will go so far as to say he, the father, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. John Calvin will say that on the cross, Jesus, um, that that. He, he took our person to himself. He suffered on the cross in our person, in your person, in my person on the tree. John Gerstner used to say about the old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? He said, you bet you were there. You were nailed to that tree with him. If you're in Christ, 
You were nailed to that tree with him. And he was sanctified as our substitute representative on the cross so that we might be sanctified. Isn't that glorious? He's the source of our sanctification. If you want to grow in Christ's likeness, understanding more of your union with Christ in his death and resurrection is vital. Because we tend to do this, and I'll leave you with this. When we look at our lives and we think, man, I've made a mess in my life in this area, this area, this area. We, we tend to think, I'm going to do better, going to try harder, going to put these things in place. I'm not going to do this because I'm going to do this. We, we do exactly what the world does. Self-improvement. And instead, the Lord Jesus says, listen, I am the source of holiness for you. Come to me, abide in me, abide in the words that my Father has given you. Remain in my word, and you will remain in me, and you will be sanctified in me because I was sanctified for you. Isn't that awesome? So that if I want more sanctification, I need to go to Christ and say, Lord, will you give me more of what is in you? Because it's all in him, and it's only in him. Everything else is just a self-improvement manipulation tactic, and it has no lasting value. I want to encourage you this morning as we think about this and as we reflect on Robert Murray McShane's statement, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet he is praying for me. I want to encourage you to take comfort in the fact that he has prayed for you and he did it on his way to atone for your sins and he is now in heaven interceding for you and he has prayed just the right thing that you needed to hear him pray for you. And he has given us in this prayer the very means to the accomplishment of that end. He has prayed that you would be safeguarded. He would pray prayed that you would be separate. And he has prayed that you would be sanctified. I hope that you'll be encouraged to go to him as the source of these things, that you'll want to be closer to him, that you'll want to abide in him, that you'll want your gaze to be fixed upon him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the prayer of your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you prayed these perfect prayers for your disciples and then by way of association for us. We do ask, Lord, that you would keep us, you keep us so that our faith would not fail. We do ask that you would separate us from the world, and we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Lord, would you do these things in us, and would you do them for your glory and for our joy? We thank you and praise you that these were the truths on your heart as you went to the cross for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.